I won't ask how many of you have read the book of Judges today, because I won't embarrass you, but the angels are keeping records, and uh, someday you'll know. This is a, a fascinating book, but it comes right after the bright promise and victory of the book of Joshua, and perhaps to many it might seem in contrast to be discouraging and uh, disappointing to read the book of Judges through. Not that it isn't interesting. I think there's hardly any book of the Bible that can compare with it in color and in interest. How many of you winced when Ehud, the prophet, or the, uh, the judge, uh, went to visit the king in his summer palace and slid the dagger between the fifth and the sixth rib, and the fat closed in around it, and he couldn't draw it out again. How many of you cringed when Jael drove, uh, or when, yes, Jael drove the tent stake through the skull of Sisera and pinned him to the ground, and uh, worried with Gideon when he, uh, God cut his army down from 32,000 to 300 and told him he'd have to do battle with those. And as you went through the book, you watched the terrible prophecy of the orphan Jotham <clears throat> being fulfilled, worked out in God's strange and mysterious workings against Abimelech, the false judge who had come in as an imposter. And perhaps your heart sank with mine when Jephthah's daughter came out to meet him as he came back from the battle. And he remembered the vow that he'd made, that the first thing that met him as he came home, he would sacrifice to God. And he had to fulfill that vow. And uh, perhaps you uh, gloried with Samson in the strength that he demonstrated, in the power of the, of the Lord as he uh, rocked, uh, wreaked havoc among the Philistines from time to time with that tremendous God-given strength of his and yet wondered at the naive folly that he manifested as he allowed a, a Philistine maiden to, to worm the secret of his strength out of his heart and utter and finally destroy him. And doubtless you turned with revolt from the, from the black story of the Benjamite perversions that marks the, the darkest and blackest chapter perhaps in all the history of Israel in the latter part of this book. Well, it, it, it's a very interesting book to read. But it's essentially the story of a deteriorating nation. And as such, it is a picture for us of a deteriorating Christian life. Now, the interesting thing about both the book of Joshua and Judges is that they both take place in the land, in the land of Canaan. Those of you who have been following along in these series know that we are looking at the Old Testament in the light of the New, in the light of the revelation that is given to us there, uh, to the Apostle Paul, that all these things, though they are reputable actual history, nevertheless also serve a dual purpose as a, as a picture of the spiritual encounters that we will be up against. And that all these things, Paul says, happened as types or examples for us. 
And God is retracing in our lives the very circumstances and the very battles and the same conflicts that we find Israel going through. And we saw that the land of Canaan is a picture of the spirit-filled life. The land is the understanding of victory, the principles of victory over sin through the risen life of an indwelling Lord. And God's whole purpose with a believer is to get him out of Egypt, the world and its ways, the place of slavery and bondage, through the wilderness with all its defeat and barrenness and and uh, and uh, fragmentary uh, enjoyment of God's resources into the land with all that it means of fulfillment and promise and supply and victory there. But the book of Judges also takes place in the land, which is simply an indication that victory in the Christian life is not an automatic thing. Just because you know the great truths of deliverance through a risen Christ doesn't mean that you automatically enjoy them. This is one of the great problems I find of many Christians. They think because they have come in their Christian experience to a time when they understand, perhaps for the first time, the great delivering truths of Romans 6 and 7 and 8, that this automatically then is taking place in their life. And sometimes it's a great shock to them to discover that though they know the truth, it isn't being very visible in their experience. And there can be a great gap between what we know and what we, under, what we actually experience. And this is what's brought out so clearly in the book of Judges. The book of Joshua is a book of victory. Where under Joshua, which is simply the Old Testament name for Jesus, remember? And Joshua is a type of the Lord Jesus. Under his leadership. When there was faithful obedience to his generalship, there was victory everywhere they went. But Judges is the book of defeat and the book of failure. And uh, it is uh, the first of a series of books of history, which, as we saw in our survey course of all of this, sets before us the perils that lie along the pathway of a believer the warning spots, the danger signals that we need watch as we go along. And the peril that's described in the book of Judges is given to us over and over again. There's a single pattern of defeat here, and it repeats itself in a constant cycle. And this cycle occupies the story of this repetitive cycle is the story of the book of Judges. Now, the pattern for defeat the principle that always meant defeat in the lives of the nation of Israel is given to us in the last book of the book, uh, last verse of the book of Judges. The la very last verse. And if you miss that, you miss the key to the book. For well, the book of Judges ends this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that was the trouble. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now notice it does not say, every man did what was wrong in his own eyes. These people were not trying to do wrong. These were not essentially rebellious people determined to thwart the will of God in their lives, as they later became in the 
much later in the history of Israel. At this stage of Israel's uh, history, these people were very determined to do right. They were trying to do right. But they were trying to do what was right in their own eyes. So that the peril, the pattern of peril here in this book of Judges can be simply put this way. They were given over to the folly of consecrated blundering. They were consecrated, dedicated blunderers, meaning to do right, but ending up all wrong. And I say, I, I can tell you that there is no pattern that repeats itself more frequently in my counseling sessions with, with people than this. How many times I've heard people say, oh, I, I, I don't know what went wrong. I meant to do right. I, I did what I thought was best. I tried to do the best thing, but everything seemed to go wrong. And this was the problem with Israel in the book of Judges. They wanted to do right, but it was what was right in their own eyes. In other words, as the verse says, there was no objective authority in their life. There was no king in Israel in those days. Now, actually, they had a king. Jehovah was their king. But they did not take him seriously. And when they did not take him seriously, they were, uh, they had nothing else to do but take themselves seriously. And so they did what they thought was right. Guided by their conscience, if you please. Dedicated in an earnest effort to try to do what was right, but always ending up wrong. And this is the problem of judges. Now, this pattern is detailed for us in the last half of chapter 1 and chapter 2. In these introductory chapters of the book, we get the, the pattern of defeat that will repeat itself again and again and again in cycle after cycle of frustration and uh, then God's grace coming in and deliverance and then another cycle of defeat. But it's always the same pattern. It begins in chapter 1 with verse 27, where we read, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages. And then goes on to list several villages. The tribe of Manasseh failed to obey God when he had commanded that they drive out all the enemies of the Canaanites, the tribes of the Canaanites, as they came into the land. But Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of certain villages. Look at verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. And verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. But the Canaanites dwelt among them. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Sidon, uh, of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon. Or other villages. Look at verse 33. Naphtali. That's not soap. That's the name of a tribe of Israel. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. Verse 34. The Amorites pressed the Danites back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down to the plain. And that was the story of the defeat of Israel. Just the beginning. They did not take God seriously about the threat their enemies posed to them. 
they moved in among them. God had said to them they were to drive out every inhabitant of all these Canaanite villages. And they were not to mingle with them or have anything to do with them. They were not to uh, marry with them or associate with them. But they were to drive them out of these villages. But when Israel got into some of these villages, instead of mounting armed warfare against them, they went in and investigated first. And what they saw seemed to be quite innocuous. Nothing seemed to be particularly dangerous to them. These pe people seemed to be very fine people. And so they said, we'll let you stay in this village. We'll start another town right next door. And gradually they allowed these tribes to retain their villages in among the cities and villages of Israel and allowed them to stay among them and settled for less than total victory. Have you ever done that? As a Christian, have you ever settled for less than total victory in your life? Did you, for instance, stop smoking and drinking and wearing overshoes in bed and all these other uh, terrible habits that you had as a non-Christian? But when it came to other matters, such as a hot temper, or worry, or self-confidence, or pride, you said to yourself, oh, well, I've improved so much over what I used to be, that after all, these are just trivial things. Surely God's not going to make an issue out of these, and allowed them to stay there, protecting them with little excuses building little protective fences around them. After all, I'm only Irish, uh, or I'm only human, or my whole family does this. Well, this is just the way I am. You're going to have to like me this way, and so on. And thus, there is a settling for less than total victory. Now look at the next step in this process. In chapter 2, we see God's grace in warning them, the, result, the results of this. He, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land, which I swore to give to your fathers. I fulfilled my bargain. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my command. And God warns him. He says, What is this you have done? Now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become adversaries to you, and their gods shall be a snare to you. That was the next step. And what did Israel do? Look at chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were round about them, and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. The next step was open idolatry. The Baals and the Ashtaroths were the gods of the Canaanite tribes. Baal was a male god, Ashtaroth was a female god. 
These were fertility gods. And you can almost see how, how easily this came about. The Israelites didn't mean to do this. They knew that God had commanded that they were not to bow down before any idols. They knew the Ten Commandments. They didn't intend to get trapped like this. But what happened was, they planted their crops, and they didn't, they weren't used to this kind of farming. They'd been farmers in Egypt, where the irrigation was the means of watering the land. They weren't used to dry land farming. They didn't know quite how to handle the crops and what to do. And so the first spring, their crops came up, and they were of rather poor quality, sort of scraggly, not much production. While the Canaanite tribes around had wonderful fields of grain. And the Israelites said to them, what do you do? How do you get this anyway? And the Canaanites said, well, it's very simple. We have certain fertility gods, and we bow down to them, and we offer sacrifice to them. And when we, uh, when we offer sacrifice and do these things, they bless our crops, and so we get abundant crops. And if you ever expect to get abundant crops in this land, you're going to have to adjust to our ways. Have you ever heard any pressure like that put upon you? Has anyone ever said to you, look, if you're ever going to get ahead in this company, you're going to have to give up some of these religious ideas. You're going to have to adjust to what we do here. You'll have to come around our way of doing things. And so the Israelites gave in. Now, of course, along with this, the Canaanites taught them how to plant their crops properly and how to fertilize the soil. And so the next spring, sure enough, after they'd bowed down to the gods of the, of the Canaanites, they found the next year's crops were wonderful crops. And they said, there's something to this fertility business. We'd better worship these gods after all. And so they forsook the God of Israel and bowed down to the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Now, what is not recorded here is that these are sex gods. And the worship of them involved the worship of sex. So that very soon they were involved not only in bowing down before dumb idols that could not speak or talk or act or think, but they were also involving themselves in licentious practices. And so, gradually, they drifted off into idolatry. Now, the next step is God's grace again. The whole pattern here of, is of man's unutterable folly in disobeying the simple word of God and God's arresting grace by which he puts block after block after block in the path and tries to wake these people up to what's happening. And in chapter 2, verse uh, uh, 16, you have God's answer to this. Then the Lord raised up judges, or, or I'm sorry, there's another Passage in between here, verse 13, the Lord and served the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and sold them. He sold them into the power of their enemies round about so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in sore straits. 
Have you ever had the Lord's hand against you? Have you ever sensed that he was against you in everything that you did? And what you thought you were doing in, in dedication and sincerity was so against what he had said and you hadn't taken him seriously that you discovered his hand was against you. This is what they found. So that nothing seemed to work out right. They found themselves in bondage. And one after another of the tribes around them was allowed to come in and and make slaves out of them and subject them to servitude and to bondage for year after year after painful year. But God's grace comes in again for deliverance. In verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the power of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And that's why this book is called the book of Judges. Because over and over this story is repeated. God raised up Othniel, and then Ehud, and then Shamgar, and judge after judge until you come at last to Samson, the last of the judges. Twelve of them, all together. And they all represent God's intervening grace in attempting to keep these people from the folly of their own senseless disobedience. Just as God will intervene again and again and again in our lives to keep us, to wake us, to stop us from the folly of not taking him seriously on these enemies that afflict us. And then you have the revelation of man's perpetual folly in verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and behaved worse than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And the result is that the book of Judges is a, is a record of a continuous decline in Israel's history. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It begins with Israel calling out after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them, they said. We're here to do battle against these enemies. And Lord, we simply want you to say, who's to go up first against them? And when you come to the last chapter of this same book, they're asking exactly the same question. And under exactly the same circumstances, except this time, the enemy is no longer the Canaanites, but their own brother, the tribe of Benjamin. In chapter 20, verse 18, Israel cries out, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Which of us shall go up first to battle against the Benjaminites? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. This marks the decline of this people. From battling against the enemies that, uh, that were also the enemies of God, they came to battling against themselves. And uh, this uh, has happened so many times in Christian experience. As you read through this book, and uh, we're not going to trace each cycle in detail, because the pattern is exactly the same, 
you discover that each cycle brings them lower and lower and lower until they finally come out at that black and revolting episode that's described in the last two chapters of this book. The perversion of the Benjaminites. And if you take this book and lay it alongside Romans, the first chapter, you'll find that exactly the same pattern is followed. First, idolatry. Uh, God, in his wisdom, Paul says, had given men knowledge of himself so that what was uh, what could be made known of him was made known unto them. They had no excuse, but what did they do? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into images made like unto animals and birds. Idolatry. And then as you trace the course through, you'll find them turning at last so that God, it is said, God gave them up, gave them up, three times repeated, unto their own licentious practices. And they learned to practice perversions among themselves. And this marks the lowest uh, stage of human folly when you come to the practice of sexual perversions. Now, the, the lesson then of this book is it begins with not taking God seriously about these enemies. Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sins, not to allow us to live with them, in the, with them in the midst and simply make friends with them and settle down and live all our lives with them. He has come to drive them out from us, to separate us from them. And if we do not take him seriously about these things that we call trivial things, we will discover that there is set into, into uh, action an inevitable sequence that takes us step by step against the intervening grace of God down a downward course that brings us out at last in moral collapse. Isn't this been the picture again and again, even in our own day, of those, uh, this is the answer, I think, to those, uh, those sudden moral collapses of men and women who have been outstanding leaders, outstanding men and women of God, who present, on the outside at least, a, a fair and happy prospect. Uh, it looks as though their spiritual life is strong and stout. And then suddenly we read of some terrible thing, some terrible moral collapse. What's happened? There has been an inward deterioration taking place exactly along the pattern of the book of Judges. And I think there's not one of us here who isn't asking himself, as I'm asking myself, is this happening to me? Am I kidding myself? Have, am I saying in some area of my life, well, Lord, this really isn't very important. Why do you bother me with this matter of, a, a, of a, an impatient spirit? Of an unforgiving episode in my life. An unforgiving spirit against someone. Of a, a tendency to dwell on lustful things. Lord, these things aren't very important. This matter of my own confidence in my ability to do something, after all, there are lots of Christians that you bless with that kind of a spirit. This isn't very important. And I ask myself as I read this book, is this happening to me? Is there an area that I'm not in which I'm not taking God seriously and I'm saying to him, Lord, it really doesn't matter. 
that I'm exposing myself to this peril and will discover, unless I heed the intervening grace of God and listen to his warning voice, I shall discover that sooner or later what's taken place here has taken place in my life and there's moral collapse. Now I trust that as we read this book we will see ourselves here for God intended it to be that way. But let me remind you also that the book of Ruth, the very next book, one of the most lovely, one of the most wonderful books in the whole of the Bible, took place during the time of the book of Judges. We'll be looking at that together in our study next Sunday night. Shall we bow together in a word of prayer? Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. Lord, how how rich is thy grace, how infinite is thy patience, how long you delay and wait and warn and beseech and urge and try to turn us back. How wonderful is thy saving grace that sends again and again a Savior into our life to, to restore us and to bring us back. Lord, we pray that we'll give heed to this voice, this blessed one who has come into our hearts and lives to redeem us, to save us, to deliver us. Help us to walk with him and know the glory of a life of victory so that with the Apostle Paul we can say, thanks be unto God who in Christ always leads us in triumph and makes known the fragrance of his presence everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.